0: Well, in January of 1817, England hosted a feast to top all feasts. Held in honor of the Grand Duke Nicholas of Russia, the menu required a Costco before there was a Costco. One food website, Mashed Records, over 100 dishes served, jellied partridge with mayonnaise, mayonnaise. A terrine of larks, such like a French meatloaf. Head of sturgeon in champagne. Included on this menu were eight soups, 40 entrees, 32 desserts, including the building hosted it all, crafted to scale in pastry. It was a feast fit for a king. God offers you and I a similar spread. He offers a lavish, extravagant, abundant feast, and he offers to all who will come to eat. It is a feast for your soul, and open wide are the doors to this feast, the doors to his kingdom, open wide through his Son, Jesus Christ. His feast, however, requires standards. There's a measure to follow to indulge in what he offers. This morning we will see that God is going to call you to his kingdom. He will do this universally and he will do it very specifically. This morning we dine in the parable of the marriage feast Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. And in this parable, we will see a universal call. God calls Jews and Gentiles alike. People of Jewish blood and non Jewish blood, all are called to the kingdom of God. Every person, without exception, he or she you have an invite. We'll also see a specific call. Not all enter, not all care. The gate is small. The way is narrow, that leads to life, and there are few who find it. And God, after all, establishes the rules for entry. We're exploring this morning the third in a series of three parables. and all three of them in Matthew, Jesus indicts the Jewish religious leaders. A few weeks ago, in the parable of the two sons, there, they were tax collectors and prostitutes entering the kingdom long before the religious leaders. We learned that unrepentance and unbelief, a hard heart, it has no part in God's kingdom. Then, in the parable of the landowner, the kingdom will be given to all who produce the fruit of it. Unfruitful religion, it has no place in the kingdom. This morning, Jesus speaks of a king, and he speaks of a feast, and he speaks of many who want no part of either. It's a call for you and I to respond to God's gospel in God's way. I want to read this morning this parable Jesus offers, and then want to explain it. I want to follow the movements of the king to do this. We'll interpret it, then we'll apply it. Matthew chapter 22, verse 1. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast. And they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat and livestock are all butchered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. And then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Well, as I mentioned, we're going to follow the king and his movements throughout this parable. And we begin with the king in the city the king invites locals to an enormous celebration, a marriage feast, a wedding feast. It's a royal wedding. Now, at at any level in the ancient Near East, in the time in which Jesus ministered, a a wedding was a massive celebration. This was, was not to be missed. And it would be all the more important when royalty hosted the wedding. I mean, big bucks were invested in this party, and the celebration would last for days on end. In our parable here, we have the grandest feast you could imagine. It's hosted by the grandest person in the land, and it's given for the grandest person in his life. The king celebrates the sun. In this parable, we should understand the king as being God, God the Father. The son being Jesus. And the feast, well, this may very well represent something called the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, I get that description out of Revelation. It's chapter 19, verse 9. Thinking about an end times timeline, there is a day that is going to come. When Jesus will celebrate his victories, God's conquest over sin. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the land, taken literally, God hosts a feast for his people. Now this wedding feast of our text, it may speak even more broadly than just that one event. There's different views on this. It may speak to the joys and the gifts of heaven. But either way, we begin with this king who celebrates his son, and he does so exceedingly. You see that he invites others. He invites you to come and be be part of this amazing celebration. Verse 3, he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. These people don't want to come. Now, notice that verse 3 contains two different invitations. A previous invitation had already gone out. Again, back in the time of Jesus in the ancient Near East, this first invitation serves or functions like a save the date. Then, the second, when it comes, is an immediate alert come now, come today. The book of Esther illustrates this. If you're familiar with the story of the queen, Uh, She first invites Haman to a banquet that she will give. She invites him the day before. And then the next day, the king's eunuch go and alert him and bring him to the banquet. It's that same type of invitation. It's a process. But to refuse a royal invitation, that's no small insult. But look at verse 4. Look at the unmerited favor of our King. Look at the grace of our King. Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. That's the third invitation. I mean, all you need to do is show up. Can you smell the meat sizzling on the grill? This word, fattened livestock, it's really one word in Greek. One Bible dictionary defines it this way. Grain-fed cattle fattened for slaughter. See, here's a king who's rolling out his finest. He's been planning and preparing. Everything is ready. Come to the feast, he says. But they paid no attention, and they went their way. One to his farm and another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. These are people who are moving from refusal to rejection. I believe that two responses really summarize our present day, don't they? They paid no attention and went their way to his farm, to his business. These are people absorbed in their own lives. No time for the king. No time for the kingdom. There's an apathy about them an indifference, a passivity to the things of God. J.C. Ryle writes, open sin may kill its thousands, but indifference and neglect to the gospel kill their tens of thousands. These people, they're they're kind, they're polite, they probably have nice families and give to charity, but if you set before them, God and His kingdom and, and His commands, and you set before them working hard and keeping house and growing businesses, their present kingdom beats God's kingdom every time. And notice with their pursuits, there's, there's nothing wrong with them. It's not idolatry or murder or felonies. I mean, th- these are the good things in life, They're the things that you and I must attend to. What they do is they shut out the things we need. And William Barclay writes that the tragedy of life is that so often second best beats and shuts out that which is best. Things which are good in themselves shut out the things that are supreme. A man can be so busy making a living that he fails to make a life. He can be so busy with the administration and organization of life that he forgets life itself. I think there's a word in there for our day. Living for God, that's true living. Living in relationship with Jesus Christ, that is life. And for some, perhaps this morning, it's time that, that, that working and, and working hard and, and doing business and and enjoying hobbies, it's time that those things get their rightful second place to Jesus Christ, to the king. And you're going to notice in verse 6 that there's a second group of people. These are the ones who were seizing and mistreating and killing the king's slaves. I mean, obviously, we, we know these guys. These are bad dudes. But you've got to see the king's reaction to both of them. It's the same. Whether they were indifferent or combative, whether they were passive or aggressive, they're both just different ways of rejecting Jesus. And how does the king respond? What does the king send in verse 7? Is it a- another invitation? He sends his armies. The king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Now, I'm not sure if these people didn't understand the king they served. Maybe they thought little about him and what he valued, how he would react, how he handled offense. Some understand the burning of the city here. Again, this is a parable, which is a a fictional account to teach us a, a lesson, a spiritual truth. Some see this account or this burning as the destruction of Jerusalem. Jerusalem would would eventually be destroyed in 70 AD. That's about 40 years after Jesus told this parable. And in a way, that that fits. It it kind of fits the parable. After all, this parable is about removing the kingdom away from Jewish religious leaders and giving it to, 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 to new people, namely all people, to Gentiles, And so thorough was their failure that God would indeed destroy Jerusalem. And he did. He did it through the Romans. And ironically, if Jesus is referring to this event, there's one little word in verse 7 that seems to take on a new meaning. Jesus says, their city. The king set their city on fire. But only Jerusalem does not belong to the religious elite. It belongs to God a little bit of sarcasm. Second Chronicles chapter 6, I have chosen Jerusalem that my name might be there. Jerusalem is the city of God. It's God's city. The Jewish leaders were called to steward it, to use it for the glory of God. But verse 7 then, taking a different view, could refer, refer to a, a broader event than just the burning of Jerusalem. Actually, in 70 AD, Jerusalem was not burned, only the temple was burned. And throughout the Old Testament, this imagery of verse 7, it's used to depict judgment and judgment even more general. I think the point we need to see here is that the king judges those who reject his calling. And with the smell of smoke in the air, with slight bits of ash blowing through the window... There's a sound of celebration while the city burns. It's our second movement in our text today. The king was in the city. Now the king is in the highway. In verses 8 through 10, he's now determined to fill his feast. He's sending out slaves into a new area of the region, and he's calling people to dine. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main highways. As many as you find there, invite them to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. In our account, the king has moved on. We might say the original guest list was crumpled up and thrown in the trash. Those who were invited were not worthy. I need mean, to see that as a comment on their response to the king's call. I mean, this is not some kind of verdict on human merit, as though some people are worthy of the kingdom and others are not. No one is worthy of the kingdom. There is none righteous, not even one, the Bible tells us. And that's true in our parable, both of those who are in the city and those who are on the highway. That's what makes God gracious. That's what makes salvation grace. It's unmerited favor. It's undeserved The main highways of verse 9 refer to roads that begin where the city ends. So if you can imagine driving along, you're now entering the countryside. The streets leave the city boundary. We might call these country roads. We can quote from our parable last week, Matthew 21, verse 43. Therefore I say to you, to religious leaders, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. That's the change happening in our parable. And if you're keeping count, by the way, this is the fourth invitation from the king. We have a king who's very gracious and patient and generous. And listen to what else we learn of this king. He loves to be generous. In verse 10, there are no empty seats in this feast. The wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. And he reigns benevolence upon the people, his people. Now, this king delights in extravagance. The word for dinner guests in your translation could be translated as recliners. We don't translate it that way. If we do, what do you think about? The wedding hall was filled with recliners. Wives, you think it's hard to get your husbands to dance at a wedding Now, Where do you have a hall filled with recliners? (laughs) Now, to be sure, reclining was the posture of the time. It's how one sat to eat a meal. But that's relevant here because it's a wonderful picture of God's care for his children. He invites you into his feast, into his heaven, to lavish gifts and love upon you. We might expect the parable to conclude here. I think it could. The story, after all, has reached its climax. The conflict or the plot—it's been resolved, but it's not over. You see, the king in the city—he saw no one respond to his call, and now in the highway, he saw the feast filled. But what happens when the king enters the hall? It's the third and final movement, the section, the third section of our parable. The king is in the wedding hall in verse eleven. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Here the king is arriving at the feast and he's, he's looking over the guests. Our Bibles say that he's, he's seeing them or he's viewing them. But I think his glance could go a lot deeper than that. There's times in the Bible where this is, is a long look. It is a deep, penetrating look. This might be you and I like squinting to see something. Or maybe if we notice something and we're scanning, we look back and look more intently. He sees a man not dressed in wedding clothes. This is a little unusual. People, are commentators through the years, have tried to, to figure this out. Some believe that the king, in an effort to resolve this, would have given his guests some outfit to wear and that this man wasn't wearing it, but it's, it's hard to find that historically. Others say this man just outright rejected the dress code. This is wearing swimming trunks to a presidential ball. But he asks him, friend, how, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? If you look back at verse 10, we learn there that, that both evil people and good people attended this feast. And our gospel author, Matthew, has taught us about mixed community already in his gospel. He's been recording the, the teachings of Jesus. And in chapter seven, Jesus spoke about wolves and sheep's clothing. They're present in the flock, yet they're disguised, mixed, mixed community. In chapter 13, you might remember the parable of the wheat and tares or the wheat and the weeds, weeds coming up right alongside the wheat, this mixed community. He speaks even of, of a dragnet yielding both good fish and bad fish all in one net. I think it, 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 it's safe not to get too specific but rather treat this more generally and let, let the, the text stand where it is. Uh, we at least know that the man came unprepared. Now, some, again, would say that, well, he didn't clothe himself in the righteousness of Christ. And, and that, that may be the, the resolution to this. Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. But again, we want to be careful about imparting a foreign reading, true as it may be, from Galatians upon this text. maybe may be pressing this imagery a little too far. Again, the bottom line in general terms, he came unprepared. He received the call. He responded to the call. But he seems to have done it on his terms. And though he was called into the feast, he was not allowed to remain there. By the time we get to verse 13... Jesus leaves the parable altogether, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. That, we should see verse 13 as a stand-in for hell or for eternal torment. This man is damned because he, he did not come to the king on the king's terms. And the king had called many, but but some, remember, some were too busy in, earlier in our parable Others were aggressive. They aggressively refused the king's invitation. And one, in this account here at this point, he even shows up on his own terms. God is the king. And God establishes his kingdom. And at the center of his kingdom is his son, Jesus. And all adoration and praise and glory, it all belongs to Jesus alone. God has delivered a call. He began with the people of Israel. He's now extended that call to all people, to all nations and tribes and tongues. He now calls all people. In fact, one of his messengers named Paul, he writes in Romans chapter 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. You can hear him begin, with the people of God, with Israel, but but moving outward. This is the power of God for all people. And the book of Acts is is a wonderful illustration of how this movement has occurred. God calls the Jews first, then the Gentiles. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you repudiated and judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we are turning to the Gentiles. And God fills his kingdom. God fills his heaven. And those who come to God on his terms, God will lavish grace and blessing upon you. It will be a stunning celebration. It's a permanent place in heaven for all eternity. So his call, this call, is my call to you this morning. I want to invite you to come and join God's kingdom, to be part of this kingdom that God is building. And I don't want you to hear what I'm proposing as some kind of request, it's a command. It's not a command from me, it's a command from the king. God calls you. In verse three, you see that the king sent his slaves to call people. And if you're tracking along, we then learned that they were invited, invited in verse three and verse 4 and verse 8 and verse 9 each one of those is the same word it's the word translated call but I prefer call over invite because of the one doing the inviting remember who does the inviting the king and when the king invites it's a call it's a command this is much less an invitation and much more a command This is less a request and more a summons. You may get this week in the the mail an invitation to a birthday and a court summons. This is a court summons. Are you invited into the kingdom? Do we invite people to Jesus? Absolutely. Everyone's invited. But we're also called. God is not asking this morning for any man to approve of his offer. And God doesn't want us to consider What we think about his invitation. The king issues royal decrees. That's what kings do. And God is king. And the best part about this is that the God of this universe has done everything needed for you to come into his kingdom. All the work's been done. Jesus says the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand And at the same time, God the King says, look to this Jesus. Look to my son. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the way to go to God, to go to heaven. You go through Jesus. You do not go to God through being a good person or being spiritual or having religion. And Jesus says, I am the truth. Jesus tells you the truth that has to be refreshing in the day in which we live. Jesus says that you sin and you're separated from God. And he says, if you believe upon me, you can be made right with God. And Jesus is the life. We all will die a physical death. We will all live eternally somewhere. Apart from Jesus, it's an eternal death. In Jesus, it's an eternal life. And Jesus is life. So God calls you to his feast this morning. And he calls you through Jesus and by Jesus and in Jesus. And when you come, if you come, remember the man in the feast. Remember the man of our parable. He didn't come in properly dressed. There was something wrong with the way he came in to that feast. And I believe that there are different ways that you and I can, can come to God terms at times that are, are, are not God's, but they are our, our own terms. And I believe perhaps one of the greatest struggles in the human heart, maybe here in the West, would be to come to God with full hearts, with hands that are full. We come to God perhaps with, with struggles and pride and ego and vanity. We can't come to God this way. We have to come to God in, in humility With a humility of heart, we have to come to God with God being king and not we ourselves. That we do not come to God as lords of our own kingdom, but we come to God giving him the deed. And we do not come to God adding to our life, but bowing all areas of our lives to his lordship. This is going to require a raw self-honesty. Russ Ramsey has written a book entitled Rembrandt is in the Wind. And it tells the story of Vincent Van Gogh. That name may sound familiar to you. Van Gogh is perhaps one of the most famous artists of all time, at least in Western art. But Van Gogh lived a very troubled life. Van Gogh wrestled with depression, with paranoia, By many accounts, he was just not an easy person to be around. One time, one of his roommates, he lost a roommate when he cut off part of his ear. The local people didn't know what to do with Van Gogh. When Van Gogh received an eviction, he checked checked himself into an asylum. But while he was there, he painted. He painted anything around He painted the gardens, he painted the grounds, he painted the fields, he painted the attendants there, he painted other patients, he painted himself. And one of his most popular paintings is entitled, Self-Portrait with a Bandaged Ear. You can put that picture up there, and you know why he has the bandage on his ear. And Ramsey notes that we, we want to appear beautiful, we want to come off as beautiful, But when we do this, we hide what needs redemption, what we trust Christ to redeem. And I think that this is a a beautiful picture because it's a picture of how you and I must also, how we must come to Christ. And you don't need to be an art critic to appreciate it. You just need to know that there were other ways that Van Gogh painted himself, much more flattering paintings of himself, probably ways that you and I would paint our own self portrait But at the same time, there's a real beauty in honesty, in reality, in seeing ourselves as God sees us. There's a real beauty in approaching the throne of God on the terms of God. I believe this is a painting, is is a picture of how we we must come to Christ honestly. We must come to Him poorly, deficiently in, in all of our weakness. That is how God would receive us. See, the Bible does tell us that this is the state of our heart after all. And to try to come into the kingdom in some other way would be nothing but pride. The king spots that all the time. But when we come to God on his terms, when we come to God in humility, in weakness of heart, in faintness of spirit, then God showers us with his grace. The king showers you in his love And his mercy, and he sets a place at the table for you. He prepares a feast for you, and he serves you eternally. You see, this painting is a picture of Van Gogh when he's at his lowest, but now it's worth millions. It's such a fitting picture of how God welcomes in the poorest, the meekest of men, setting a place at the table and making them great. It's a fitting conclusion for how God works in the lives of his children to all who hear the gospel, to all who respond to the kingdom, to all who enter the the feast of the king on the terms of the king. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you are the great king. We are your subjects, we are your servants, and we pray for a humble heart which reflects that. I pray that none of us would enter your feast on our own terms but come with empty hands, with open hearts, to receive your terms. Father, I pray that you would humble our hearts. And I pray you would give us grace and mercy to receive your salvation and to persevere in it. We love you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.